Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast where, with Jay Rosen, we take a look at movies from the compliance perspective. But before we get to our podcast, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You Would you like to explore some compliance topic? Well, I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm looking for new podcasters. If you've wondered how you might start a podcast, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, Jay and I began a multi-part exploration of the Star Trek movies. As many of you know, I did an entire series this summer on the intersection of compliance and Star Trek, the original series. Today, we continue with our third offering, The Search for Spock. I know you will love it. Popcorn and Compliance is produced by the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud part of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist, back with Jay Rose and Mr. Monitors for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance. Today, we're going to take up Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Um, Jay, I'll have to say... Uh, in re-watching this movie in preparation for this podcast, uh, this really struck me as um, one of the better uh, uh, Star Trek movies in the entire movie genre. And while I'll probably always be partial to Star Trek II, uh, The Wrath of Khan as the top Star Trek movie, this one certainly uh, could be considered 1B. I found it just uh, almost operatic operatic in scope. The... Um, I thought the direction by Leonard Nimoy was was really spot on. Um, it it really introduces to for the time of the release of 1984 a, a next generation of special effects brought to us by Industrial Light and Magic. Um, and uh, I thought the story story was great. The script was great. I've never been a big Hard Bennett fan, but I think he uh, he hit it on this one. And um, he started uh, with. Uh, he started at the end and worked his way back. So I'm going to have some questions for you on the, that t- tactic or technique of screenwriting. But I thought it all came together and I thought it all worked. So uh, do you have some initial thoughts or are you going to go directly into Inside Hollywood? Uh, let's, uh, we'll have a mixture of those. I'm going to talk about some of the themes you just brought up and then uh, bring back my old studio heads that I, I cannot believe it has been uh, – you know, somewhere uh, I, I've been out in L.A. for about 25 years and, you know, just uh, to go back and, and think about where I was when these movies came out, what Hollywood was like and what Hollywood is today. So uh, as you uh, said, Tom, uh, Star Trek three, the search for Spock is a 1984 science fiction film written by Harve Bennett, who may not be one of your favorites, uh, directed by the aforementioned Leonard Nimoy. And based on Star Trek, it's the third film in the series, and it's the second part of the three story, uh, three film story arc that began with Star Trek II: Wrath of Khan, and will conclude with Star Trek IV: The Voyage Home. Paramount commissioned the film after positive, positive critical and commercial reception to The Wrath of Khan. 
Nimoy directed the film, becoming the first Star Trek cast member to do so. Producer Harv Bennett wrote the script, starting from the end and working back, and intended the destruction of the Enterprise to be a shocking development. Bennett and Nimoy collaborated with Effects House ILM to develop the story and uh, had uh, composer James Horner returned to expand on themes that he uh, previously composed. While The Wrath of Khan was a critical and commercial success, Paramount Pictures quickly prepared for the third Star Trek film. Uh, The Wrath of Khan's director, Nicholas Meyer, would not return as he had disagreed with changes made to the film's ending without its consent. Upon seeing The Wrath, Leonard Nimoy became excited about playing Spock again. When asked by Paramount if he wanted to reprise the role for the third feature, Nimoy agreed and told them, You're damn right. I want to direct that picture. Studio chief Michael Eisner was reluctant to hire Nimoy because he mistakenly believed that the actor hated Star Trek and had demanded in his contract that Spock be killed. Nimoy was given the job after he persuaded Eisner that this was not the case. Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's first reaction to the news was that Harv Bennett had, quote, hired a director you can't fire, unquote. Paramount gave Bennett the green right to start writing Star Trek III the day after Khan opened. He began writing the screenplay, noting that 17 other people could have written it and the hints of Spock's resurrection in the previous film. Bennett Nimoy used the open thread of Spock's mind melding with McCoy at the end of The Wrath of Khan as a way to explain Spock's restoration. A major issue Bennett wrestled with was how to introduce the story for people who had not seen The Wrath of Khan. Bennett said that his television producer mentality ultimately won out, and he added a previously in Star Trek film device and had Kirk narrate the captain's log, describing his feelings and sense of loss. Aware of the story's predictability, Bennett decided to have the USS Enterprise destroyed and intended the plot element to be kept a secret. Nimoy wanted the search for Spock to be operatic in scope. He wanted emotions to be large, broad, life and death themes, and the look of the film and everything about it, everything from sizable characters playing out on a large story on a large uh, canvas. In addition, he wanted the characters to have significant scenes, however small, that made them grounded in reality. Bennett started writing the script with the ending where Spock says, Your name is Jim. The script was completed in six weeks. The production estimated budget of $16 million was slightly larger than The Wrath of Khan, but much less than Star Trek The Motion Picture. Since elements such as many sets and uniforms had been established, more money was available for special effects. During the filming, to guard against leaks that had prefigured Spock's death during the production of The Wrath of Khan, Paramount took productions to secure the sets. Sets were built out of sequence, and the crew was only given as many pages as they needed to make each locale. Security guards checked the picture ID cards of production staff. Any mentions of the production were removed from stationery and documents, and the French word trois for three was written as a code word. Offices and workshops were bereft of any identifying signage. The search for Spock scripts were chemically treated so that copies could be traced to the original. As a further canary trap, subtle changes in wording distinguished each copy. Nimoy's name never appeared on the call sheets, and Spock was referred to in the script as 
Naklav, Vulcan spelled backwards. Despite the precaution, word of the Enterprise's destruction did unfortunately leak out before the film's release. The search for Spock continues the Wrath of Khan's exploration of Christian biblical themes of life, death, and rebirth. Nimoy wrote that the search for Spock's major theme is that of friendship. What should a person do to help a friend? How deeply should a friendship's commitment go? And what sacrifices and obstacles would these people endure? That's the emotion line of the film and its reason for existence. While Spock's bodily resurrection was complete, his mind was a blank slate. The search for Spock. Michelle and Duncan Barrett argued says that the most important question is whether an individual's mind functions as is the key to meaningful existence. The search for Spock opened on June 1st and a record-breaking for the time 1,996 theaters across America, competing with films at that time, which included Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, and Top Secret, released by the same time. More than half of the nation's screens were filled by summer blockbusters, the search for Spock grossed over $16 million on its opening weekend, and its second weekend, while the film's gross dropped 42%, the box office strength of the search for Spock and Indiana Jones led Paramount to dominate early summer business. The film made $76.5 million in America for a total of $87 million worldwide. The search for Spock received generally positive reviews from critics who praised Nimoy's direction to which USA USA Today attributed the film's success and capturing the essence of the TV show. Newsweek wrote that due to Nimoy, the film was the best-paced Trek film and that his familiarity and experience with these actors enabled him to bring out the best from them. The film's sense of self-seriousness and the camaraderie amongst the characters were generally cited as positive aspects. So it seems like with this third entry into the Star Trek canon, uh, with Leonard Nimoy running things and Harv Bennett producing, it seems like they've gotten to the point where it's a well-oiled machine. They had finished fighting the budget battles, and they were able to concentrate on making a great motion picture. So, Jay, the, um, it was really interesting, your kind of insider scoop, and the, um, the way the film all came together – uh, as you know, I really uh, write, think, and talk about uh, set design, uh, makeup, music, and all of the things that go into the technical, more of the technical aspects. I love the photo- photography, and there's a lot about special effects on this movie, and um, I'm a big fan of matte paintings, so there's lots of great matte paintings on this as well, but the... Um, the themes, uh, the overall themes that you talked about in terms of, uh, of uh, resurrection, of uh, the body and the soul, uh, where does the soul go after the body ceases to exist, uh, having um, Sarek come back uh, for this picture, uh, I, I thought we're really uh, all in- inspired and, and took the, the movie a little bit, I felt like this was a movie as opposed to an extended television uh, episode. I felt like Star Trek II was was more akin to a television episode. Uh, so um, I really appreciated kind of the the big the big budget, the big picture, uh, the operatic themes, and and all of those. Uh, some of the things that that struck me um, about this movie 
were the, um, I have to call out Uhura. And there was a scene in early on where they essentially steal the Enterprise and uh, they are chased by the Excelsior. And she is down in the transporter room working on the graveyard shift. And for those who don't know about Nichelle Nichols, uh, she uh, was a Hollywood actress, obviously, before the original uh, series came along. But she was also uh, well-known in nightclubs. And she had, uh, I've never uh, seen a clip of her act, but I can only describe it as Red Fox Raunchy, if uh, that term still resonates. And uh, she was... um, quite a accomplished actress as well. And, and I love it when actors uh, can communicate literally with the blink of an eye, with the roll of an eye, with the lift uh, of an eyelash or an eyelid and, uh, or an eyebrow. And uh, in the scene where they stole the enterprise and she tells the, um, uh, she puts the transporter officer working with her. Uh, she puts him in a closet uh, so that uh, she can uh, let the Enterprise go and get past security. Um, the uh, They're having a conversation before the emergency occurs where the transporter officer says, why are you down here? You're, a, you're at the end of your career. Why are you in this uh, uh, dump position working the graveyard shift on the transporter? Uh, I want adventure. And she just raised an eyebrow and said, oh, you'll get adventure. And it, it, it actually encapsulated her entire kind of nightclub career. And you could see how with a look uh, she could communicate, as I said, that kind of red fox raunchiness, if, if that phrase still resonates, as I said. And I just absolutely love that scene. And, and I watched it several times. And every time I watched it, I, I fell more in love with it. So um, that for me was a, a, a really a great scene. Uh, the other one was with James B. Sicking. And I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Let's be careful out there, right? Well, that wasn't. He he actually, he was on Hill Street Blues, but that wasn't his role. He was the head of the SWAT commander. Howard, He was right? the pipe smoker. Yeah. He was the pipe smoker on um, Hill Street Blues. And he tends to play kind of, I don't want to say buffoons, but certainly arrogant people. And um, he did that. He had that role as the head of the Excelsior. And it was, uh, emblem, the emblem was he carried a swagger stick. And so that really uh, led me to think about uh, leadership and what kind of leader carries a swagger stick. Obviously, Herman Goering carried a swagger stick, and I don't want to take it in that direction. But when you see that in a movie or a television show, that usually signifies someone who is uh, overcompensating for having small hands, number one. Uh, But more importantly, number two is they are very arrogant, and they tend to listen to their own counsel, and they tend not to listen to others. And uh, that was uh, the position that Sicking found himself as in as the uh, uh, captain on board the Excelsior when the Enterprise escapes and he's about to give chase. Um, he uh, he says he uh, Kirk uh, will be busted out of the service for this and this will be the end of uh, Kirk because he's got the new ship with a allegedly much faster engines and um, 
what he has failed to uh, enter into his decision-making calculus was that Mr. Scott performed the final uh, shakedown of the Excelsior and disabled the warp drive. So he's not able to uh, give chase. But it, it was simply that swagger stick, I think, communicated a style of leadership which is completely discredited today uh, because of its ineffectiveness. And as a stock character, you know, it certainly worked. Um, I kind of feel sorry that Ticking got so typecast in that role. Nevertheless, I think when people see him, they they expect that sort of buffoonery. But for the leadership lesson, I really wanted to point to to that swagger stick as, as a way not to go. Um, the other thought was I recently watched the new Jack Ryan uh, series um, on Amazon Prime, and uh, part of it entails – some uh, U.S. mercenaries who were ex-SEAL types uh, going into Venezuela to do some work. And one of them is uh, separated from the others, and uh, <clears throat> they go back and, and get him. And then in, that, in the course of that rescue mission, the leader is separated. and uh, But he's separated intentionally. He's trying to drive the bad guys away from them so some can save themselves. And um, the person who they came back to save says, no, we're going back to get him. And uh, then he said the following, it's not one of the rules, it's the rule. And uh, for uh, special forces ops, for Marines, for U.S. Army personnel, I think the number one rule is you don't leave your wounded and you don't leave your comrades on the battlefield. And and this movie really had that feel for me. Um, if I could go back to the original series and um, the the uh pilot episode and then what became the um the menagerie the two episode series uh, where uh spock <clears throat> took Cap- uh, captain christopher pike his original commanding officer back uh to planet talos after a horrible accident that left him invalided uh to the point where he could only communicate uh via mental signals with a yes and a no and um it was in a sense they weren't leaving him behind. They were giving him life. Well, here, uh, Kirk goes back for Spock. And it wasn't just a rule. It was the rule. And it was the only rule uh, for Kirk that he had to go back for his friend after Sarek explained to him uh, what had happened and why um, the Katya, his soul, had to be rejoined with his body uh, originally, it was for not for resurrection, but simply to put him, <clears throat> put him on the voyage to Vulcan Nirvana, wherever that might be, so uh, or Valhalla, or wherever you might call uh, going up after the body dies. So um, I've really uh, thought about those a lot in terms of <clears throat> what is the most important rule. Uh, what not to do in leadership, and then really how can you communicate? And that's, that scene with Eura, is I, it, obviously it struck me, and it struck me as it's really the scope of her tremendous acting ability and the scope of her career as a public figure, as an actress uh, going forward. So those were really some of the things that uh, I really wanted to talk about in the context of this podcast. Yeah, all, all, all good stuff, Tom. And um I think there was uh, some other commentary that I read about Nimoy that he purposely was trying to communicate 
uh, people's emotions with these extreme close-ups. So I think that might also go into whatever, um, you know, the, the impact that Uhura had on you in just such a minor thing that you can, you know, really isolate on it and tell the whole story. So I think, you know, as this crew uh, gets used to getting back together on their annual or semi-annual uh, uh, movies, they're able to actually uh, develop those kind of deep themes and uh, take it from a different level than they did on the series. So, Jay, the question I had for you was around the original screenplay that Bennett wrote. Now, I understand mm-hmm. that, that it, uh, as with all screenplays, the original screenplay was not the one that they went to, to print with or went to produce the movie with. There were uh, uh, people brought in to uh, revise and um, work on it. But uh, is that a valid way to think through a potential project where you start at the end and work your way back? Uh, I, I don't think that there is one way to have the creative process. There are, uh, you know, when you're writing, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've had some lonely late nights and early morning when you are deciding to put together uh, a blog or a podcast. And sometimes if that creativity doesn't flow, uh, it does help the writer to know where the destination is where you need to go at the same time, if you're not feeling it and you know, some other scenes, you can go back in. So normally most people work with a three act structure. Uh, you know, the first 30 pages, the first half an hour sets up that movie and sets up, you know, what is the critical thing that needs to be accomplished to get to the end. So I've known people who do it different ways. I think you always have to know where you're going to end up. But then there are also times that I learn things from my character when you're uh, you are actually going on that journey, that journey of of a thousand faces and a thousand heroes. So I I think that there is no one way to go, but you always need to know where you're going to end up. But sometimes you might encounter uh, some revelations and surprises on the way. So that um, um, I once took a a novel writing course where the one of the novel writing uh, instructors said that was the secret to writing novels. Start at the end. Uh, so you know where you're going to be and write towards that. Um, frankly, that was not the way we were taught in law school. So I've never written that way. And that was kind of a revelation to me, but um, I thought the the screenplay really came together. As I said, I thought the, um, the direction was just outstanding and the actors seemed to enjoy uh, having Nimoy uh, as their director in this case. And um, I really, uh, really enjoyed uh, the themes of the movie. I thought there was a lot to think about. Uh, let me say a, a word about Christopher Lloyd. Um, typically, mm-hmm. he had played uh, more comedic roles, um, certainly in Back to the Future is probably his, perhaps his most well-known role. Uh, but also, uh, he was in other uh, comedies before this, and Nimoy uh, thought that he uh, would have a great uh, range, but also most interestingly gra- would bring gravitas to the role of Klingons, which they had not previously had that sort of gravitas. And I heard uh, later directors of uh, Star Trek television um, series talk about uh, when they had Klingons in TV shows, 
they tended to hire Shakespearean actors uh, because they had that gravitas and because they had dealt with larger themes of honor and glory uh, in their work as Shakespeare. And they were used to conveying those themes uh, through voice intonation and uh, other uh, strategies that actors on the stage use because they have to, uh, as opposed to in a in a more visual form of a movie or a television show. And I really point to Christopher Lloyd as the first actor to bring that sort of gravitas to um, uh, a role of a Klingon in a Star Trek movie. So uh, props to uh, Christopher Lloyd. In uh, in this case, he had a great, uh, or his stunt double had a great fight scene with Kirk's stunt double uh, as part of the movie. So, uh, so that was pretty cool, too. So let me ask you a completely unrelated question, but a Star Trek question nonetheless. When the Enterprise or any other ship there in uh, gets jolted by protons or phasers, how come the uh, people are always thrown forward? And then when they're thrown forward, they never really seem to have any battle scars or blood. So do we know why that is? Well, yeah, uh, Jay, because they didn't get cut. Uh, pretty simple, you know, if you, you get bruised internally, but if you don't get cut, you don't bleed. So it just happens there's no sharp objects on the bridge or any of the other various places where they're thrown. So in space, nobody can see you bleed, huh? <laughs> that's, that's certainly one way uh, uh, to look at it. Yes. All right. Um, <laughs> there's one other actress that I would like to, I suppose I should say actor. Um, Thank you. I wanted to shout out to uh, in this uh, episode, and that's Jane Wyman, and that's Spock's mother. Uh, and the reason I want to shout out to her is uh, she was in the original series, as was Mark Leonard as Sarek, his father, in Journey to Babel. But she was also Ronald Reagan's uh, first wife. So uh, I always think about uh, Ronnie Reagan when I see Jane Wyman uh, in this. So, uh, well, uh, should we get to a popcorn rating, Jay? Yeah, let's do it. So uh, I'm going to go first, uh, I think, on this one. I'm going to give this, uh, a, um, I would have to say, a bucket and a half. I'm not going to go overflowing. I'm not going to go two buckets. Uh, I still think, uh, even after this podcast, that uh, Star Trek II is probably my favorite. But uh, I just thought that uh, there were so many things in this movie that made it a great movie, as opposed to really an extended television episode, uh, that it's... Uh, worth more than a bucket of popcorn. All right. Well, I I am also positively inclined. Uh, I will stick with the full bucket of popcorn, brim it over. And uh, since Mrs. Monitor is not with me, I'll I'll throw those milk duds in and and see if I can enjoy it before she gets back. All right. Well noted. Well, Jay, uh, this has been a great episode. I hope our fans will join us for our next episode where we're going to explore Star Trek or the voyage home. Hope you'll join us again. Thanks. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, where Jay and I took a look at Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email uh, me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again in our next episode where we take up Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. Popcorn and Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.